Good afternoon and welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Bonanza, Bitter Waters. This is going to be an amazing class, if I say so myself. I hope with Hashem's help. So, like a lot of times when I, when I prepare shiurim classes in the Shara B'tochen, at first things seem overwhelmingly simple, deceptively so. And I know that it's not the case. I know that I have to, I have to delve deeply. I know that I have to mine every single iota because we're dealing with one of the greatest books ever written. And the great Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar, who's speaking to us from across the centuries, almost a thousand years now. Century after century, this book has been studied assiduously by saints and scholars and simple people alike. And everybody has found something in it. Everybody has been inspired by it. So to think that he would just write, uh, eh, you know, mumbo-jumbo, just like Narishkeit, old wives' tales, I think that's offensive. And just between us, <laughs> it's downright stupid. The assumption that I live with when I study this is that I'm, I'm, um, I'm studying something of tremendous, tremendous holiness and sheer brilliance. And I have to try. I have to try my best so that we can understand the deeper messages. And I think that I've stumbled upon something today thanks to the sources provided to me by a number of the commentaries. I kind of started thinking in a certain direction, and but we'll see. You'll be the judge. I think that you will very much appreciate um, the kind of things that we will study today. With no further ado, the 92nd episode in Shara B'tochen, and thank you all for joining. I see some of you who are piping in and saying hi on the live chat. If you're on U Facebook, come over to YouTube. If you aren't uh, subscribed yet, please do us a favor so that you know when I go live and we can uh, be on the same wavelength as they say, youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Just hit subscribe enable notifications. So let me begin uh, uh, Bonanza Bitter Waters by saying that we have already studied 
at length, and I think in a very solid way, this idea that the Shara Betochen, the Beinu Bechaya, promulgates how we should view our vocations, our professions, and the efforts we make to achieve what we call prosperity. Rabbeinu B'chaya believed and taught that we should engage in our work for the purpose of being sustained. That is, our basic needs. It is always guaranteed Hashem will provide for our basic needs. How about uh, wealth? How about more than just the basics? I want to survive. I want to enjoy life. I want to have lots of money. No. Get in line. Join everybody else. Or most people. But here's the thing. The extra work and the unethical conduct is not going to earn an extra penny. You knock yourself out. You won't live a life. Instead of spending time with your spouse or with your children, with your extended family, instead of spending time with Hashem in His home, the synagogue, the shul, Instead of dedicating a portion of your morning and your evening for Torah study, as a Jew is halachically mandated to do. Instead of living a life which is filled with mission, meaning, purpose, and yes, satisfaction. You can knock yourself out and spend your whole life trying to make an extra dollar. And then you'll end up spending that money trying to regain your health that you destroyed in the process. But here's the thing. Rabbeinu Bechaya assures you, and he speaks with the authority of one of the greatest Rishonim. We look at Rabbeinu Bechaya, Rishonim Kemalochim. This is like an angel speaking to us. He says to us, it's not going to work. You're not going to make one more red cent than Hashem has ordained for you. It matters not if you work 23 hours a day or work 9 to 5. You are expected to engage in what is considered to be normative activity. If people work from 9 to 5, so be it. If people work from 8 to 6, then, then that's what's expected. Whatever the norm is, whatever is the, 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 the frame of, of employment for most normal people who are making a decent living, you do that. Hashem promises you parnasa. You're guaranteed. And if you will merit affluence. You merit it one way or the other. Let me repeat that. All of the work you do is not going to make a difference. That is the faith-based perspective. That is one of the amino acids of what we call betochen, the trust in Hashem that can enable you to live with certainty and security. And you have to learn how to do this trusting. But that's what we believe. That's what Torah ordains. So as such, a person does not need to, nor should he or she, seek additional avenues of income that require inordinate amounts of work or less than ethical conduct or business mores. Because your finances are not going to be altered with these activities. In other words, the means 
does not bring the fortune. The cause is what sends you the fortune. The means, well, it's just a pipeline. Having a fancier faucet isn't going to bring you more water. It's not going to increase the water pressure. That happens in the source of wherever the water is coming from. And what happens when people think that their efforts, that their chosen occupation, and the amount of time and toil they invest is making all the difference? Well, what happens is that you, you begin to move away from trust in Hashem. And that, as we learned in the very beginning of this series, quickly devolves into not only a lack of trust in Hashem, but that which is tantamount to idolatry, to worshiping a foreign deity itself. If that sounds shocking, go back and watch some of the earlier episodes and you'll see it's very, very clearly delineated and spelled out in a manner that anybody can understand. So having said all of this, how did we conclude the last sentences of the previous episode, we concluded with the idea, with the idea, that if a person thinks that it's the efforts, it's the means, it's the vocation, it's the inheritance, whatever else it is, that that brought you the wealth, it's not Hashem that leads a person to become disloyal to God, and the last words were, umishabeach hasiba hamisabev. He then, then praises the means instead of the cause. If you want to follow along in the Kihat book, that is the last line on page 142. The last line on 142 is, He praises the mean and not the cause, and the cause is the Creator, Hashem. So I want to revisit this and delve a little bit more deeply into the meaning of praising the means, not the cause. Let's open up by taking a look at the Marpele Nefesh, who says, Marpele Nefesh is a commentary, a super commentary on the Chavis Alavovis, on the, the Shara B'tachem. He says, what might the cause be? What am I referring to? He says, Melachtoi your work, vocation, or profession, or masa, or matan, the commerce, the business you engage in, the transactions. So you mishabeh hasiba. And in doing so, you forget the misabev. Who is the misabev? The misabev tells us the marpala nefesh is who Hashem yuzbarech. That's God, blessed be He. Misabev kolasibot, the cause of all causes. So when you see a domino effect, don't blame or rely on a particular domino. That's not what did it. We say, well, that's what did it. I'm looking at a thousand dominoes in domino number 500. He knocked down domino 499. No, no, no. At the beginning of a thousand dominoes, 
there was a person who knocked down the first domino and he is the cause of all the dominoes that fell. God is the cause of all the things that happened, the cause of all causes. And all those causes are choreographed by God. The Mesav Hashem is Baruch. The Paschlechem spells it out. He says it gets worse. Don't think that you attribute success to the means and the cause too. It never works that way. That's not how human nature is. Human nature is such that we find our cause and we show appreciation or we look to that cause. And in our mind, we think, I just got to keep, keep things lined up because that's the cause. And if you think that the cause is the means or the vocation, the transactions or the commerce, if you think that's the cause, you will not think about God. Such is the nature. And Eino Meshabchem is so they will not praise or thank God, who is the Mesav of Kolasibais. And Neder Bakoidesh, in his commentary, adds an amazing term. An amazing term that I want to share with you because I think it illuminates things. He says, Hamasavev, who Nora Alila, the awesome cause. What's he referring to here? What does he mean? Why do you have to add that word, the awesome cause? So I remember that the term Nora Alila actually comes from the book of Tehillim, the book of Psalms. It's in Psalm 66. It's verse 5. Luchu uru'u mifale selekim. Go and see the deeds or the achievements, the impact of what God does. Nora alila al adam. An awesome cause unto people. So the Mitzudah's David says, Maisav noiroim. He does unbelievable things. Ba'avur adam. Amazing things. Rashi says it's also a little frightening to know that you're not in control. And God is looking at you each and every single moment. And he will judge you for what you did or didn't do at all times and in every place. And that's Noira. Noira alila abnei odom, says the Radak. Noira maisav abnei odom. It is awesome the way Hashem is involved and engaged with each and every single member of the human race. He will do his will with them until they finally take notice. That's the way God treats us. In other words, until we all stand in awe before him. The upshot is that God may do as he pleases. His actions have no external constraints as do ours. Rabbeinu Bechaya equates or relates the term alila to the term ila. In other words, that God is the prime cause of all events. So when we say noira alila, awesome indeed, we don't only mean deed, we mean cause. God's deed is the cause of everything. 
And indeed, the Medrash Tanchuma in Parshas Vayeshev says something incredible to illustrate this. The Medrash notes that the story of Yosef HaTzadik, the righteous Joseph's meteoric rise over Egypt, is a classic illustration of God's orchestration of all human affairs. There were countless, it would seem, unrelated events. Yosef had an issue with his brothers. They went off to do their thing. They threw him into a pit later. Another group of people happened to come by. Yosef was sold multiple times. Happens to be sold into the chief butcher. Happens to have a wife who becomes infatuated with Yosef. Happens to try to seduce him. Happens to end up in prison. Happens to be that royal courtiers fall into disfavor with the Pharaoh. They happen to end up in Joseph's prison. They happen to have a dream. He happens to interpret it. And all of these stories, little details, little events, each in and of themselves could comprise a narrative, its own independent narrative. All of them come together like a string of, of diamonds. It's Hashem stringing things along until the circle is completed. And now a necklace is in place. The necklace, the chain of office that gets placed on Yosef by the Pharaoh himself. And that is just a detail in a bigger story. And this is the story of how the Jewish people eventually come down to the land of Mitzrayim. And through a number of seemingly unrelated events, eventually the Jewish people are enslaved. And they experience a harsh and brutal kind of experience. A, a, a terrible form of slavery. A cruel bondage. And this leads to the miraculous deliverance, the birth of the Jewish nation, and the rest, as they say, is history. So that's the meaning of Neira Alilo. It's awesome. It's incredible. That means that what happens to each and every one of us, you happen to meet this person, they happen to go there. How many things can be traced for a single successful business transaction, for a person achieving success and vocation? Somebody else can make the same efforts and fail. Somebody else can make hardly any efforts and succeed. We all know that's true. But we still think it's our efforts that do it. They say, well, you know, there's Murphy's luck. But it's still me who's making it happen. And Torah Emes says, it is not you, not me, not us. Hashem is arranging everything. You have a very limited arena of freedom of choice and it is limited to that which is the will of Hashem, your ability to choose to serve Hashem, to live a life of holiness and subservience, of devotion and dedication to God, or to choose to turn your back on God. That's the only choice you get. The rest of it is all choreographed, all brought into existence, with trillions and octillions of details, all operating in perfect synchronicity. This is called Hashgacha <laughs> Pratis, individual divine providence. The magnificent divine design of our universe, which is beyond what the mind can fathom. That's the cause for everything. And that, my dear friends, is ignored by the person who instead says, I made it happen. It wasn't God, it was me. 
almighty me. And then the person starts being mishabeach, starts praising or focusing on the cause. Pardon me, the means, not the cause. Now, I think this is pretty, it's pretty understandable. It sounds to, you know, kind of makes sense. And yet, and yet, Rabbeinu Bechaya is not satisfied. It is, he's not satisfied with what we have now understood. He feels compelled to weave a narrative for us. He's going to create this parable and this metaphor, and that's going to bring it home. And I told you at the beginning of this episode that when I was preparing the class, it seemed somehow superfluous, inordinately simplistic. It's, very, it's a very like lame metaphor. And who needed the metaphor? What, like, why wouldn't I understand this principle, especially since it's been explained to us multiple times? Without this little metaphor, what does the metaphor accomplish? This is kind of like the, uh, I want to just give you the perspective of where we're going to go. We're going to go through this metaphor, and, and then we're going to look at it, analyze it carefully, and try to understand what Rabbeinu Bahaya, I think, is really saying to us. And I think that when, when you hear what Rabbeinu Bahaya is really saying, when you hear about the incredible, and I'm not using that word in hyperbolic fashion, I, I mean that really incredible message that Rabbeinu Bahaya is conveying, you're going to have to say, wow. But first, before we go, just to drive home the point, I want to share with you an excerpt of a mimer, of a Hasidic discourse that was delivered by the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe in the winter of 1926. Now, he is living under tremendous difficulty at the time. He's taken up residence in the city of the, ca- the former capital city of Russia, now known as Leningrad. It's called former Petersburg. And he's being relentlessly persecuted by the Gepa'u, which is the secret police, and the Yevisekzia, Yemachshimam, the wing of the KGB, whose sole mission and purpose is to stamp out the, the flame of Yiddishkeit. That's their sole mission and purpose. And the Rebbe's doing his thing, and he's maintaining a network of secret schools across the country, enabling mikvaot to be built and Jewish life to continue to flourish under the radar. And this is a teaching. This is one of the memorandum that he delivers in that milieu. So the, the teaching, amongst other things, is also going to highlight some of the, 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 the verbiage I've been using. I, I, I use the word foolish quite a bit. It was a bit of the highest word. I, I also used the word stupid, and, and maybe that was stupid. It's, it's not a smart or nice word to use. I probably shouldn't have used it. Foolish, folly. Does that mean that if we don't have betachen, we're fools? Does it mean that if we are lacking in faith, that we are embracing folly? 
I mean, the answer is yes. <laughs> but this, this uh, mimer, the opening of this mimer, gives us a little bit of an appreciation of what that actually means. So the Friedrich Rebbe says, there's Chacham and there's Chsil. There's the wise, the wise one, and the fool. And he says that the term that's used, this is biblical term, terminology. He says the terminology Chacham and Chsil refers to two dimensions within the same person. We each have a godly element, a divine dimension, and that's called Nefesh Ho'elikis, the godly soul. It is selfless and subservient to Hashem in nature. And then there's the Nefesh HaBahamis, the animal soul, which is selfish to the core, rotten selfish, mean-spirited selfish. It's an animal. I didn't say evil. Animals aren't evil. But when a person chooses to behave like an animal, then he or she becomes evil. Because the animal doesn't know better. The animal's survival instinct is not only its strongest instinct, it is what makes the animal function. Animals don't know of selflessness. They're not capable of analyzing a situation and electing to do that which is profoundly uncomfortable because of belief or conviction. That's unique to the purview of the human experience. People can do that. Of course your dog loves you. In Hebrew, kelev is called lev. It's all heart. It's its nature. It's its nature. It's its instinct. It's just loving in nature. So it's a lot of fun for people to have dogs. It's not so much fun for people to have tigers. They're not so loving in nature. But the dog or the tiger is not any more or less evil. The nicest, cutest little dog and the meanest, most vicious cougar are not inherently different. They both follow their nature. But a person who chooses to behave in a manner that is compassionate and sensitive versus the person who chooses to behave in a manner that is cruel and selfish, this is the two poles, the extremes of human behavior. And we all have it within us. We have a godly soul which is saintly and spirited which is sensitive and selfless. And we all have an animal soul, which is cruel and brutish, selfish. It's all about me. What's in it for me, says the animal soul. The wise one is called the Chacham. The Chacham, that's the godly soul. The Chsil, the fool, that's the animal soul. The Friedrich Rebbe says, every human being is made up of two dimensions, broadly speaking. Seichel and Mides, our personality is intelligent, cerebral, and then it's emotional. The measure of our emotions. He said the Chocham is the person who follows a godly life, a spirited life, a selfless life, a life of service. A life of goodness. 
That's the person who allows their mind, their conviction and their belief to override their natural desires and inclinations. So if you naturally desire something and somebody else has it, you're not going to snatch it away because you're stronger. You're going to say, why should I take something that belongs to somebody else? But I want it really badly. And I need it. And I deserve it. And they don't. That's the difference between criminal behavior and between appropriate behavior. It's criminal. Take something that's not yours. And what if something rightly is mine? I worked for it. I have it. It's mine. And somebody else needs it more than me. Or I don't need it at all. For me, it's just a luxury. For that person, it's survival. What's the righteous thing to do? Give it. Share it. That's right. That's what tzedakah, what the world calls charity, is all about. So this is the choice that we make. Are we going to be the animal within us or the angel within us? Are we going to be a person who chooses to live that kind of upright, wise life? Or are we going to live a brutish life, which is about self-pleasure, self-aggrandizement, and self-achievement at any cost? This is the big question. That's how the Friedrich Geber introduces the Maimah. And he says that both have intelligence and emotion. The question is, which one is in the driver's seat? And then he goes on, on page Kuf Lamadal, and he says like this. Lev chsilim, they say, they say there is no God. Elo haminim, these are the heretics. They say the world, oilam misnaig chas v'shalom manhig. The world's out of control. Or never had anybody controlling it. Whatever, it's an intelligent design may have spawned the world, but it has nothing to do with now. Now it's on automatic. There is no force that directs events. There's a fascinating medrash that says that God says, I created the world with Yes. Yes, it was so. You say no, it is not so. Not so, God. And that's the meaning of Lev Ksilin, the heart of the fools. Think about what we discussed. No, no, not so. No God here. Says the Rebbe Yisrael Shem Tzadikim. Jewish people who live life righteously, what should they be yearning for? What should they be aspiring for? They are called inherently ma'aminim be'emuno shleimo shuhuchein. We believe he is yes, not no. Yes, there is a balabayit. Yes, there is a force, a boss. That's God, the cause of all causes. And <laughs> the chesilim, the fools say, loichein, not so. Does it mean they have no faith whatsoever? Don't think so. They have some faith. But their faith is not intact. And therefore, whenever they see something or speak of something which they may or may not understand, and you want to talk about God and living a life that is inspired, the first thing they say is, Show me. It's not so. There's a God in the world. Nah, it's not so. I don't see it. Show it to me. Until you show him a miracle. You can illustrate it precisely. 
in a manner that is chiyuvi of seichel anushi, that it makes perfect rational sense to them. And until they can understand exactly how it's possible that God controls everything, is I believe in something, but I'm in control. And effectively, they believe in themselves or nothing. This is the meaning of people mistakenly saying, God is in the heavens. However, he's not found in our realm. They say that God has abandoned the world and allowed it to be to its own devices. As such, they worship the sun and the moon. What that means is the solar energy and the lunar energy power things in our world. So of course they know that God is the creator or believe in some kind of creator. Recent polls indicate that the vast overwhelming majority of humanity has faith in a higher power. But the vast overwhelming percentage of humanity does not live his or her life in keeping with the idea that that higher power cares and knows about them individually and cares about the decisions they make and the behavior they engage in. To enter into a relationship with God is to put yourself into a position of subservience. Because if there is a God and that God knows me and cares about me and has given me something to do, then I am obligated to follow through with that. But if I believe in some nebulous higher power, but I want to do what I think is right, if it's right for me, whenever I decide to, because it's all about me, what I like, will I really live a selfless, compassionate life? When it suits me, if it makes me feel good, I'm self-worshipping, not worshipping God. Whenever you talk about Kedusha, the Friedrich Rebbe said, we talk about Bittel, we talk about nullity. And these people, they say, God is is the God of all gods, the power of all powers, the cause of all causes. In theory, nothing to do with me. They look at the means and they believe it is a power in and of itself. And this is the mistake. They say God has abandoned earth. He's not involved in our world anymore. So what do we believe? He says we believe that God is intimately involved with every single detail at all times and this is the meaning of the statement that King David makes in Psalm 121 that the God of Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers. The Amru Razal and our sages taught us that this is best understood by means of the metaphor, the words of Rabbi Yeshua to the Roman Caesar who said, that the Jewish people's survival is likened to a wolf, 70, pardon me, hungry wolves surrounding a solitary sheep. Lambs don't fare well in wolves' dens. They turn into lamb chops very quickly usually. And this little sheep, she continues to live. That doesn't make sense. That's not a logical thing. 
And the Friedrich Rebbe says, it's not just about the nation of Israel. You can see it if you wish to, individually. You know and see that Hashem is Mashgiach al Kol Pratu Prat, that God oversees every little detail. Later on, he says, the fact that the Hashpah comes derech Hashemesh, it seems that the crops are growing by virtue of sunlight. It must be the sun. Don't worship the sun. It's like the hatchet in the hands of the woodchopper. Would you praise the hatchet? So that's a wonderful, wonderful axe. He did a great job. Thank you, axe. Would you praise the hammer? Would you praise the chisel? Would you say, look at this amazing building built by the tractor? It's a fantastic tractor. Look at this beautiful painting made by a paintbrush. This is a fantastic paintbrush. Let us give praise to the paintbrush. Said nobody ever. You give praise to the artist who wields the paintbrush. And it, yes, maybe a quality paintbrush, but paintbrushes, they'll do anything by themselves. Instead, the praise and thanks is du lahaboyne v'hachoytsev to the one who builds or chisels. So it is also with the sun and the moon. They make no choice whatsoever. They are merely a hammer in the hands of the carpenter. And the thing is that this is the truism we believe in. But the truth we can't see. If this would illuminate openly, if the Son of God, so to speak, would radiate openly, there would be no room for any mistakes. But instead, there is a narte kamachasa, there is a smokescreen, a sheath, a covering, a concealment, and that causes the mistakes. And Hashem hides his footprints and fingerprints so well that we say, God doesn't live amongst us. He's not involved. Anyway, that's the gist of the minor. So this is the, the point that the Beinu B'chai is making here. And he's telling us in no uncertain terms that it's not the things you do that bring you the wealth and the affluence. Which brings me back to my original like, question. Who needs a metaphor for this? What isn't understood up until this point? I think everything's understood. No, the Bain of feels compelled. He has to give you a metaphor now. And as it says in the Kahat version of the Shara Batachan, if you go to page 143, they wrote a nice little introduction to the next piece. And they wrote, and I'm quoting, it is God who causes the means of livelihood to be available to the person. And he who is the one who causes the person to be successful when engaging in those means. The author will now illustrate the folly of a person who places importance on his means, thinking that excessive toil or use of unethical means will help him earn a living. When in truth, he would have earned exactly what he was supposed to 
in an easier manner. Why the illustration? Whither the parable, Rabbeinu Bachaya? All right, let's do, let's do the parable. I'm going to read through the parable. I'm going to, you know, just a, a quick cursory read. And there's actually one word, maybe two. It's the same word. That, that the, the, our sages, or the commentaries of the Shara B'Tochem focus on. And I think that's where we're going to be able to discover something very profound. So what is this person like? What is this person like who's busy praising the, the, the paintbrush and the hammer, the chisel and the axe? What's he like? A person who's in the desert. He's traveling. Okay. Now he's overcome with thirst. He's what they call in English severely dehydrated. He finds waters that are not sweet, bitter waters. Interesting that he emphasizes not, not, not sweet. What if they're not bitter? What if they're just unsavory? It's all part of the metaphor. Waters which are brackish or bitter. Waters which are unclean or unsavory. They're not sweet water. It's not nice sweet water. And he finds it, he finds it in a cistern. Try to put yourself in that headspace. You're in the blistering hot desert. You're terribly thirsty. You found a cistern. You have water. You're very happy. The person greatly rejoices. He says, wow, phenomenal, fantastic. I can get a drink now. So he satiates himself. Slakes his thirst, drinks his fill. And then he goes a little further. And then he finds a fresh well, a flowing spring of sweet water. Dog, alma, shakodam, He now feels deep regret. He's like uh, distressed that he drank so much of the other water. That he drank his fill of this less than sweet, unsavory, inferior, bitter water. That's the metaphor. That's the metaphor. Funny metaphor. He drank water, but it was unsweet water. It was bitter water. But then he finds a bonanza, but he can't enjoy the bonanza because he drank the bitter water. So he doesn't enjoy the bonanza. Okay. Well, how did that clarify things? Are we, how, how are we wiser vis-a-vis the things we talked about earlier? Says Rabbeinu Bechaya, aha, you see? This is the meaning of the metaphor. V'chein ba'al ha'momen she'igiyah ilav b'sibi yadua. 
And so it is also with a person who has great affluence, riches and wealth. And it came to him through a specific means. Maybe he worked really hard. Maybe he made a great investment. Maybe somebody died and left him a will. I don't know. Something happened. He says, I am rich because of A, B, C, or D. E. And he forgets one thing. You're rich because Hashem decided you should be rich. It has nothing to do with A, B, C, D, or E. Hashem decided you should be rich. Hashem decided that you should have that extra money. How did it come to you? Whatever. That's not really the point. It doesn't matter how it came to you. It came to you because Hashem decided you should have it. So what would have happened if this means would have been withheld from him? So what would happen? He'll get it another way. In the way we explained much earlier, he's going back to what he said in the beginning of Peri Gimel, chapter 3. As the prophet, or verse states, and this is the book of Samuel 1, Shmuel Aleph, the 14th chapter, the 6th verse, Nothing prevents Hashem from bringing or giving you his salvation, whether it's through many or through few. So the wealthy person's wealth reached him in a particular fashion, but it would have reached him regardless. In other words, like this, so what's, what's, what, what is the metaphor? So in the Kahat edition, he beautifully uh, kind of interjects, and he writes on page 144, and I'm quoting, the difficult work that he engaged in to obtain his wealth is the equivalent of the bitter waters in the parable. Why? Were he to have realized that he could become wealthy through a different, easier means. Which easier, as we said, the Tevalavonen says, easier. The Paslechem says, unethical means. Which is considered, in the metaphor, the sweet water. He never would have engaged in the hard work. So now he regrets it. And that's the meaning of what says in the Pasuk and Shmuel. For Hashem, there's no limitation. He can save with many or with few. In other words, and again, I'm using the elucidation from the Kiyat edition. Since it is God who is the true source of his success, there is no reason for him to specifically choose a difficult occupation. Why did he choose a difficult occupation? Because he wants to torture himself. Why does he work 20 hours a day? Because he enjoys it. Because he thinks it's going to cause him to be more successful. But God, who's unlimited, could provide a person with wealth through any venue. An easier venue. A more ethical venue. A venue that allows you to come to the Beit HaKnesset, to pray on a daily basis, to study Torah on a daily basis, to spend time educating your children, to spend time building a home with your spouse. The Torah wants you to do those things. So if Hashem wants to give you His parnasa, if Hashem wants to give you His wealth, He gives you His wealth another way. How many times does it happen that a person puts 90% of the effort into a particular pursuit and it brings him only 10% of the profit? And 10% of the effort ends up yielding the other 90% of the profit. And the person says, I didn't make a mistake. I still need to put in that 100% of the effort. I didn't have to put in 10%. It never would have worked. Did you never know which is the 10%? And because I don't know which is the 10% of work that's actually going to bring me 90% of the profit, i got to put in 100% of the work. 
knowing full well that 90% of the profit is coming from 10% of the work, and 10% of the work is going to bring me 90% of the profit, but that's the way it has to be. Says who? I couldn't come to Shul Rabbi. I couldn't get involved in davening. Of course I couldn't be involved in a mitzvah. Are you kidding? So what if it's like Bomer? I can't. I, can't, I have no time for that. It's the Torah thing to do. Well, you know, I've got to make a living. Indeed. But where did your living come from? So people keep drinking the bitter waters. But imagine somebody you trust will tell you, don't drink the bitter waters because there's sweet water up ahead. Who would do it? Nobody would drink the bitter waters. Why do people, people keep drinking the bitter waters? They never even find the sweet water. So what did the metaphor do for us? What was so much not understood that became so clear through this metaphor? I'm not, I'm not asking that question in jest. I'm, I'm asking that question very seriously. You know, in the, in the, in the Art Scroll uh, edition, they bring down this metaphor, which is set over in the name of the Navardic Yeshiva. I don't know. I'm a descendant of Reb Simcha Zizel, the altar of Zemkel, not Navardic. Anyway, this is strong Musser movement, the very strong Musser movement. So they used to say like this, to kind of, and to illustrate the point. So this peasant comes to the big city, and in the big city, he's told that he can hop on a, on a train. Why take a horse and buggy? The train goes much, much more quickly. And you get to your destination much faster. I never saw a train. I said, wow. Show me the way. I take him to the train station. He gets on the train. He's waiting and waiting. And finally the train starts to move. And it's going very slowly. And he's waiting for the train to pick up speed. He said, this is slower than my horse. And he thinks to himself, aha. Uh-huh. I know when my horse goes slow, I hit him on the rump a little. You know, just a little tapping. And, if, and the more I hit him, the faster he goes. So he opens a window, sticks his hand out of the train, and he starts to smack the side of the train. An amazing thing happens. As he's hitting the train, the train starts picking up speed. He says, ha ha, Givaldic, I figured it out. I know how to make the train go fast. And he's hitting the train. He's banging his hand against the locomotive even more quickly, hitting the train with force until he got the train to go very quickly. <laughs> he looks at him and says, you didn't make the train go faster. The train is not a horse. He has his proof. It's clear as day to him. He hit the rump of the horse. The horse ran. He hit the side of the train. The train moved. As they say in Yiddish, gay to him, Epis. Go, go, go reason with a guy like this. You know, I got to tell you, that metaphor speaks to me a lot louder, a lot more clearly than this metaphor of bitter waters and sweet waters. He drank, he came to one water, he couldn't, didn't have to drink from that water. This is a simple metaphor. Simple. A simple example of a person doing something, thinking it's effective, when in fact it is not. This is the story of our life. So why don't we just say, that's the story of your life? Because we don't see it that way. So we have to find a metaphor where you can see it with crystal clear contrast. You know what a train is. You know what a horse is. So it's easy for you to understand that metaphor. But the metaphor of a desert and thirst, what was Rabbeinu Bachaya thinking? What was he trying to convey to us? And this will be the, 
focus of today's Bonanza Bitter Waters class for the rest of, for the balance of the time we'll spend together. So I was racking my brains on this. I, it, 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 uh, I couldn't figure this out. Now I noticed something interesting. That there's one word, one word that maybe didn't have to be here. And the word in Hebrew is verova. Verova. And I'll tell you why it didn't have to be here. On the surface. What's the difference between drinking to satiation, to slake one's thirst, drinking to just memoriate one's thirst? What's the difference how much the person drank? He drank bitter water. He regrets drinking it. It was disgusting. Why'd you drink it? I had to. I forced myself. How do you feel now? Whatever. I still taste it. Disgusting. I had to. So there's an emphasis. It doesn't say vishata or vishasa. It says verova mehem. Very interestingly, this is the word that the commentaries discuss. Nobody asks my question, but they all talk about the meaning of this word. Because the word shows up twice in the little parable. It says, Verova mehem, and then it says, Dog, he's worried, he has distress. Alma mishitoso hamayim harishona, viravoto mehem. He doesn't even mention drinking the first time around. He doesn't even say the word drinking. But the second time around, he says he regrets the drinking and the slaking. So the first time he only says slaking. The second time he says the drinking and the slaking. So the slaking of the thirst. I thought to myself, this is key. That's the key to unlocking the puzzle. So listen to what I found. Let's go to, let's go to the Neder Bakredish. The original Chovas Halavavos, which is the, the, the volume from which this chapter is taken, the, the Bashar B'Tochen, written by Rabbeinu B'chaya, like I said, nearly a thousand years ago. Literally, we'd have you know, a handful of years to, to the thousandth anniversary. So it was written in a, in, a, in, a, in a Hebraized Arabic, which is the spoken language of the Jewish people in that part of the world in the day. It's translated about a century later by the famous translator of Maimonidean works, the great Rabbi Ibn Tibbet. Okay. So, Rabbi Ibn Tibbet is a Rishon also. He's a great Rishon. And he chose his words very carefully. This we know. But there were no vowels. So sometimes, in Hebrew, you could have the same Hebrew letters, but vowelized in a different way have a very different meaning or sometimes a slightly different meaning. And sometimes the commentaries describe the vowelization with which you should read the words. And that's what the Neder Barkredish says here. He says, Virava, he says, the Resh and the Vav are both Ta'aselikmatsim, which is a euphemism. It means place a komatz underneath it. Virava. What's Virava? And he adds the word. 
Vishatamehem, says the Nedabakadish, he drank of these bitter brackish waters, Kidei Sevi'a, to the point of saturation. To the point of saturation. He's saturated. He can't drink anymore. He's drunk his fill. So I found, I found it very interesting. I found it so uh, quite fascinating that he, he spells out how you read the word, how you vowelize it, and then he says, it means drinking to the point of saturation, full saturation. He didn't just drink. He drank until he could drink no more. The Marpala Nefesh emphasizes his Shatah Mehem Tzarko. He drank his fill. He filled his need. Kidei Sevao. The Paslechem, in his commentary, he kind of develops this. He says, the word Rava represents a state of being in Hebrew. It represents drinking to the point of what he calls Shever HaTzimoin. Tzimoin is thirst. You could be terribly thirsty. Be a little bit thirsty. If you're not thirsty at all, somebody comes and says, here, have some water to drink. You're like, I don't want to drink water now. No, no, have some water. You need to be somewhat thirsty. But if you drink and drink and then drink some more, it's like, I, drink, I can't drink anymore. I have no thirst left. So breaking thirst, it breaks. He's talking about this means to break thirst. For example, he says like satiation, which means to fill your belly, your stomach. That's called Sheva Haravai, to the point that you have no more appetite left. You know, people can eat different amounts of food, but at a certain point, you reach your point where you're full. You can't eat anymore. Where it becomes not, not only gluttonous, it becomes nauseating, disgusting. The person starts to regurgitate the food that he tries to stuff down his mouth. It's, 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 it's indecent. It makes him sick. <laughs> In a halacha, it's called an achila gasa. You know, you're not allowed to eat on Yom Kippur. But if a person eats and eats and eats and eats to the point that he is nauseated by the food he's eating, then the eating that takes place afterwards is not even a sin. It's not called eating. Eating is a pleasurable experience. Having an appetite means we have a desire for food. At a certain point, you have no more desire for food. By the way, since we're talking about food and saturation and eating the fill, the Rambam happens to tell us in the laws of Hilchus Deus in the fourth chapter that it's a very bad idea to eat until you can't eat anymore. He maintains that most people experience physical breakdown because they overeat. They don't know when to push back. See, a baby knows exactly when to stop. Babies are not gluttonous. You don't say, oh, that gluttonous baby is nursing and nursing and nursing. How much could he breastfeed already? The baby knows exactly when it's enough. And if the baby eats or too much or drinks too much, it spits up afterwards.
We, on the other hand, we don't know how to push back. That's one of the things babies do better than we. You're supposed to know how to say, I had enough. We often eat, not because we're hungry, but because the food's delicious. So as long as there's some appetite left, we keep filling the appetite. By the way, animals never overeat. They eat their fill. Because all of their behavior is instinctual. Whereas we behave in a non-instinctual manner. We behave in a manner that is somewhat governed either by our mind or by our emotions. Either by our desire to do what is good and right or by our desire to pleasure ourselves. And sometimes seeking pleasure can make ourselves sick. So we're talking here about breaking the thirst till there's no thirst left. Okay, look, why is that important? And then the Paslechem drops a bomb. Drops a bomb. And for me it was a bomb. He says, this is like the verse that's found in Deuteronomy, Laman Sveis Harava. Why did the Paslechem have to even bring that verse? What is the point that's being made? And by the way, that's a verse I always had difficulty understanding. The verse is found in Parshat Nitzavim, Deuteronomy 29, verse 18. Moshe Rabbeinu is talking about good behavior and bad behavior. He says, we the Jewish people entered into a covenant with God and there is expectation from us from Hashem, and we can choose to ignore the covenant, the oath, and worship idols, do our own thing. And so Meshav Beno says, in verse 18, So when people, or a nation, for whatever reason, will hear the words of this oath, and he will proverbially bless himself in the heart. Lamer saying, meaning deluding himself, into thinking, Shalom, ye Ali. I'm going to be just fine. You're just fine. I'm going to do as I please. I will follow my heart's desires. I'm going to be free. No rabbi's telling me what to do. No preacher's going to tell me how to stop living and doing. I'm going to do what I want to do. Freedom. Free. Do it as I please. Follow your heart. If it feels good, do it. Always don't bother anybody else. It's not nice to bother anybody else. Do whatever you want. Chill, man. Have a good time. Nothing is moral or immoral inherently. It's all good. It's your life. YOLO. You only live once, you know? That's what a person tells himself. I'm going to walk, follow my heart's desires. Oh, Hashem says, So God says, I am as if to add to the state of, to the drunkenness, to the thirst. So Rava is understood to be drunkenness. And the way Rashi explains it, it means the things that a person does in a mindless fashion. Not choreographed. Not that he was thinking about, I'm going to do the wrong thing. He was like, he was in a state of a stupor. I'm like, 
what, what did the Paslechem want here? He says, oh, you know what Rava means? Rava, Rava, go look in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, it means like to be confused, disoriented, drunk. Or, as many of the Mepharshim explain it, to do things in a mindless fashion, in an accidental fashion, like unintentional sin. Why did the Paslechem have to send me off here? Does the word Rava never show up anywhere else? I started to look. I started to look, try to figure this out. I found, very interestingly, the Chizkuni. The Chizkuni Alatera says like this. He says, Sfais Harava means to continue to live in a sinful in, in a sinful way to the point that even when I have no desire to sin, it becomes my way of life. This includes the times that one's soul, so to speak, is satiated. It's full. It's from material pursuit, from self-indulgence. There's no like sensual libido that pushes you to do this. For example, wearing a suit of woolen linen. What does it feel sensual to wear woolen linen? It gives you pleasure. It's like, like an aphrodisiac to wear a woolen linen. It's a woolen linen. It's the same thing like wool. I don't know. It's, not, it's nothing. What does it do for you? And a person does sins like that. So why would a person do it? If you knew it's woolen linen, it can't be bothered, but fine. But here he knows it is. So what are you doing it for? He says, eh, makes no difference. I am not going to be bound by your laws, God. I'm not going to buy into this mumbo-jumbo religion stuff. I do it if I want. You say, no, well, and I wear whatever. It's a nice suit. I buy it. And he adds that to the tzmeya, to the thirst. What do people thirst for? Thirst for profit, for money. So what did you steal the money for? It was so easy. It was easy to steal. And I could have more money. Couldn't, couldn't control myself. Arroyus, licentiousness. What did, you, what did you do? Why were you flirting? Why, why did you have that affair? I, I couldn't control myself. It was so seductive. It was so it just drew me in. So here's a person then a description of contrasting two kinds of sin. One is sin, which is triggered by desire, by lust, and the other is sin, which comes about just by mindlessness. Could care less. Not that I have an appetite. Not that I have a desire. Not that I have a craving or a lust, but why not? Who cares? So I'm thinking this, this is the word Rava that the Paslechem likely is talking about. It's got to be what he's talking about. And then I continued to look and I found, found some other commentaries. For example, Rabbi Yosef Bechorshar sometimes called Rivash, another Risha, he says that sometimes a person lives such a sinful life that he or she does things that they can't even explain why they did it. He's, he's reached the point of saturation. He's satiated. There's no more appetite. Any time 
He has no Yetzirah. What are you doing it for? You stand to make profit. And he puts that together with sins that he has. A very big craving and lust for. Talks about shatnas, which is like what the Chizkuni says. He also adds the idea of Zriyas Kloim, planting mixed seeds together. And he talks about the craving and the lust and the desire. He talks about theft and he talks about licentiousness. The point is this person says, I'm going to do what I want. I'm not going to be bound. I'm not going to be limited. Don't tell me what to do. I'm free. I'm a free-thinking person. I don't need God. And then I started to think. So if this is the word Rava. This is what Rava means. That a person reaches a point of satiation. Of saturation. That the point then that this is a thing that gets done almost indifferently. It's not because they had a craving or desire. It's like, what do you mean? How, how else do you do it? That's, that's the way it's done. Sometimes a person has what we call a nisayon, a test. It's a test, let's say, to be honest. It's hard to be honest. And he's tempted. He's tempted. He's a lot of money. He's putting money on the table. So I could be dishonest. All I have to do is wink, wink, and, and just say something else, and they'll never know. There's money on the table. It's a temptation. And what if I say no? And what if I'm honest? And what if I return that? Who knows if I'm going to have a chance like this? I won't have the money. So a person's tempted to do it. And then it could reach a person where a person says he keeps drinking this bitter water. It becomes a way of life. I say to people, why don't you come to Shul? I'm too busy making a living. What are you talking about? Five minutes earlier, the guy was telling me, I have no reason to go to work. My children are running the business for me. I have no reason to go to work. I'm not even exaggerating. It's an actual conversation I had with somebody. They said, well, if your children are running the business, you don't even need to go to work. Maybe come to Davin. He says, oh, it's a mitzvah to make a living. Mitzvah, he became a mitzvah man. And I'm listening to this guy, and he says, this is, a, this is a tragedy. A person living his life mindlessly from a spiritual perspective. He's got no time for God. He's got no time for spirituality. He's got no time for mission and for meaning. He's too busy pleasuring himself. But then it comes at a certain point, it's not even lust. It just becomes the way the person lives. And if only the person would know that life could be so much sweeter, so much more fulfilling, so much more beautiful, but he's drunk his fill on the bitter waters. He thinks that's what life's about. He's not really happy. He's not really satisfied. He lives with annoying emptiness from a spiritual perspective. He's got three shrinks. And he struggles with addiction because he wants to be happy. But you could be happy. It's available to you. No, 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 no. He keeps drinking the bitter waters. And when he gets to the sweet water, he's already drunk his fill. He's got no energy left. He has no appetite left. He can't do anything else. 
The Bainu Bechaya is not using this metaphor to describe to us a person who doesn't realize the truth. He has a distorted perspective of the truth. He forgets that there's a God who caused everything to happen. That's not what this metaphor is. The way I came to understand it. This metaphor describes the kind of lifestyle that most people tragically live. A life that's filled with emptiness. A life that's filled with purposelessness. How often does a person on their deathbed say, I wish I would have spent more time in the office. I wish I would have played more golf. I regret the time I spent with my children and my grandchildren. I have deep regret that I davened. I wish I wouldn't have studied Torah. Said nobody ever on their deathbed. Why? Because that's what life is really about and that's what really brings us a sense of joy. If you still see me, that's good. Because it says I crashed. So I'm restoring the paradigm. Uh oh. I'm still live. All right, I just can't see it. Good. I crashed it. Did I? I think it's coming back now. I see Kimberly. Kimberly's talking about a place in Arkansas where there are seven springs that are bitter separately but sweet and healing when mixed together. It's an interesting idea, Kimberly. I don't I don't I don't actually don't think what's what we're talking about here. I don't, I, I, it's not even, you know, if you notice in the metaphor, Rabbeinu Bachai didn't call the waters mirodim. He didn't call them bitter waters. He called them not sweet. Not all of life is bitter. If Rabbeinu Bachai was simply trying to tell us that people spend their time doing things that are bitter, I, I, I think that, you know, this metaphor wouldn't work for a lot of people. It's not bitter, he says. I'm working, yeah, I work, I work hard, I like my work. My work, I get in the office at 6 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I work till 8 o'clock. It's fine. I like it. I like it. I'm fine. I'm good. It's not bitter. It's sweet. Do you do that on a day you don't have to do it? Are you glad when you get a day off? A person who immerses his or herself in a spiritual experience. Say, I, I need a vacation. Too much spirituality. Too much closeness to God. Too much sense of spiritual satisfaction. Nobody says that. It's abnormal. So why aren't we drinking from the sweet waters? Why aren't we enjoying the beautiful things in life? Because we're busy stuffing ourselves. We're busy drowning ourselves in the brackish, unsavory, non-sweet waters of life. And we have no room left. And we feel we have no choice. Because that's what brings me Baparnasa. That's what makes me a living. That's what does it. But it's not true. Hashem does it. And the same wealth you would have, you're going to have anyway. So for heaven's sake, what are you doing? And so often people get consumed by the material pursuit. They drink the unsavory waters, the non, not the sweetest of waters. 
and they go through a life that isn't as sweet as it could be. Sometimes it's even bitter, sometimes it's just not sweet. Because they got no time. Because they're free from Torah and mitzvahs and shackled to the world and all of its demands. And they're so immersed, they have no room for anything else. That, my dear friends, I believe is the metaphor. And I think that is why Rabbi Ibn Tibbin, in his genius, translated, or whatever the world that, that, that Rabbi Bechaya wrote originally, the word was something like Rava. That's the point that's being made. And then I found something incredible. Amazing. Spring of 1963. Shabbos Mevorchim The Rebbe spoke about a Mishnah. In the Mishnah, it uses the word Al-Tityayesh min Don't give up. Don't give up. When things don't go well. Don't give up. Don't think things can't not go well. Nothing's guaranteed. The word Tityayesh. And the Rebbe asked questions on the Mishnah. And the Rebbe said that the questions will be understood when we take a look and see what the Targum Yonatan renders the word Vehit Barech Bilvavo. Vehit Barech means, Vehit Barech means he blesses himself in his heart. So what does it mean to bless yourself in your heart? It's okay. Uncle says, Vehashev Belibay. He thinks to himself, as do the vast majority of people. They think to themselves, it doesn't make a difference. How much religion I'll have in my life does not make a difference. And how much satisfaction I have in my life, how much spirituality I have in my life is not going to make a difference. That's not going to pay my bills. Give me a break, Rabbi. i got to work hard and steal a little. Or maybe just work very hard. And I have no time for anything that you call spiritual because, because i got a bread, i gotta, I got I got to butter the bread. You gotta pay the bills. He thinks to himself, The Targum Yerushalmi says, He comforts himself. He says, You know, I'd love to be spiritual. Ha, the rabbi's got time for this. Well, I don't have time. I'm not a rabbi. I have no time. I can't be. He kind of makes excuses for himself. He sympathizes with himself. He says, Okay. The Targum Yerushalmi he says a very unusual word. He gives up in his heart. What does it mean he gives up? What does it mean to give up? What is giving up on what? What is the verse trying to convey to us? So the Rebbe said an amazing thing. There's a famous mimer of Chassidus from the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe of Lubavitch, Abisholm Dover. It's called Kuntus Umayyan. Kuntur Sumayan from Maimer number five and onwards, a collection of many Maimarim. It speaks about this Pasuk. And he explains the meaning of this verse. What is the person saying? And the Rebbe goes on to explain that in a person's relationship with Hashem, if God is the ultimate provider for all of us in every place and in every time, God is providing for us in two manners. Either in a straightforward manner what's called a glowing countenance Hashem gives you or you're receiving but it's like thrown over the shoulder and then Abed Hashab uses a metaphor he says imagine if you can a ball a royal ball 
He says there are two kinds of people who eat at this ball. The king invests an enormous amount, or king or queen, enormous amount of money and resources into making the most amazing menu. A phenomenal, unforgettable evening. The Melech makes a feast, a mishteh. He spends an enormous amount of capital. It's a state dinner. It's a beautiful event. It is without a doubt that the king or queen does not intend or desire to feed the waitstaff. The custodians, and certainly not the dogs who frequent the garbage bin. And yet, despite the fact that the intention of having this beautiful meal made was for the invited guests, the fact is that there's food left over. So everybody from the kitchen staff from the scullery maid, so to speak, they're all eating the leftovers. And then in the end, the dogs are eating the leftovers. So they could say, here is these famous princes, princes and princesses, they ate at the ball. And here's a dog, a homeless dog, he ate at the ball. And here's a custodian. And here's a waitstaff. And here's a dishwasher. They all ate at the bowl. They're all the same. Of course they're not all the same. One is receiving in a manner that is friendship and love affirming. And one is receiving. They're taking the leftovers. It seems very clear in the metaphor. But in life, it's not so clear. You can receive from Hashem in a manner of bracha where Hashem blesses you. Or you can stoop to the level of an animal. You can embrace the operating system of what's called sitra achra, the other side, the dark side. God sustains things good and not. You have to make the choice. How do you want to receive from God? And if you choose to receive from Hashem, you receive from Hashem. And if you choose not to, then you get the other way. Of course, everything's from God, but it comes in a backhanded manner. Hanimshul Mizeg, the Rebbe Rashab goes on to say, this is in the seventh Maimon, that a person can choose to receive with the supernal will which is illuminating to you. And that comes through the wisdom of living a Torah life, a life of holiness, a life of love and devotion to Hashem. And it brings you what we call God's blessings in a glowing manner, a beautiful life. Or you can choose to live a life that rejects all of that. And you may have money in the bank, but it doesn't bring you lasting satisfaction. Your life is empty, meaningless. Your existence becomes pointless. And needless to say, you're not very happy. Such is the fate of so many wealthy, materially successful people 
who walk around vacuous and empty and unhappy. It's a choice we make. You can drink waters which are less than sweet and can live a beautiful life. Hashem is going to provide for you. The cisterns are not the parnosa. The cistern represents the kind of life we choose to live. It's an amazing metaphor. And I was reminded of a sikh of the Rebbe that I shared with you multiple times in the beginning of this series. A sikh that goes back to Chelek Lamed Aleph and Lukut on page 171. Over there the Rebbe speaks about the Jewish people's grave sin in the time before the genocidal decree of Purim. And the problem was that they ate from the bowl of Achashverosh and the question was, there are bigger sins. And the Rebbe says that he could explain this by virtue of a teaching that we just mentioned. We just mentioned. And it's not incidental. We just mentioned the 70 wolves. We just mentioned the solitary sheep. It's connected. It's all connected, my friends. Our sages tell us here that Rebbe invokes the same Maimar Azal. Found in, in, in Medrash Tanchuma, Parshas told us. And in Medrash Aben Esther. And it says that we are metaphorized as that solitary sheep, surrounded by 70 hungry wolves. So how do we survive? And Rabbi Yehoshua said, God because there's a great shepherd who is watching, who is saving, who is protecting us. Rebbe says that means that our existence amongst the nations is oftentimes in a manner which is entirely beyond the frame of nature. Paradigmatic to the kivsa. The sheep surrounded by the wolves. How is she surviving? This is by virtue of God's kindness. The God the great shepherd, who's Matzil However, says the Rebbe, when is this the case? That the Jewish people are being supervised, shielded protected, saved by God's providence. In the 80, with the 70 wolves, that is kasher, when they behave in a life that's mindful of this. That they rely on Almighty God. God will save us. We got to do our part, but God will save us. When they in fact reject this idea of God's Divine providence, God's miraculous salvation. And how do you do so? You think that the wolves are going to save you. You think that if you curry favor for the enemies of Israel, they will save Israel. We just need to curry more favor with them. Then they remove, by virtue of that reliance, the divine miraculous providence. Then you put yourself into the brackish water bracket. 
You put yourself in the unsavory position. Now that's the water you get to drink. This is what the Rambam says in Mor in the end of the, in the third section, in the end of the 51st chapter. The Rambam says over there that everything has to do with mindfulness. He says, According to your mindfulness will be Hashem's supervision over you. If a person lives a life where they never stop thinking about Hashem for a moment, Hashem will be guarding and watching and supervising every moment of your life. And when you empty yourself of that consciousness, and when you forget about God, because you're busy praising the means, not the cause, it's not God who gave me Parnassa, it's the vocation, it's the person, it's the promise of somebody else. Tismait oisa hashgacha. By doing so, you diminish, you diminish that supervision. Because you're not allowing for it to be there. You're not aligned. You have a weak connection. You know what it's like, he says? It's when your person's involved in his business and he thinks that it's his vocation and he thinks that it's his hard work and he thinks it's what he's doing that's making him the, the living. It's like being on a, on, a, on a cloudy day, he says. Yoim b'yoim onon lezorcha by Hashem. There's no sun shining. Machmas ha'anonim ha'mavdilim because there's clouds. So you're clouding. You're blocking out the sunlight from yourself. And you want to know why you're cold? Because you block the sunlight out from yourself. That's why. It was a beautiful sunny day. Are we kidding? It was very cloudy today. It was your choice. There were clouds of your making. And then, as I'm, I'm putting all these pieces together, and then I found something which became even more mind-blowing. The Khatam Sofer, commenting on this business of the waters that are less than sweet, he links it to a story in the Torah that's found in Parshas B'Shalach. That the Torah tells us when the Jewish people came out of Mitzrayim, they encountered water, and the water was bitter. And the Magad of Mizrich says, it was bitter because they were bitter. Their attitude had everything to do with it. And he says the people are drinking their fill of this water that's bitter. And depending on how bitter they were, that's how bitter the water was of drinking the fill of it. Had they only trusted in Hashem, he says, they could have drank in a much more beautiful way. They could have slaked their thirst with water that was enjoyable. You could live a beautiful life. You don't have to live a life that is filled with anxiety and worry and stress and pressure. Who says you need to live that way? I wasn't going to make a living. The same living you're going to make, you're going to make regardless. And if you want to make the money through toil and anxiety and pressure and stress, that's your choice. Then you drink your fill of the bitter waters. Or you can choose to place your trust in Hashem and to live a life of holiness and purpose and sensitivity and compassion and sharing. And you know Hashem is going to provide. You're doing your part. You don't sit back and relax. You're doing your part because Torah says you have to do your part, as we discussed so many times in the previous episodes. What happens then? <laughs> what happens then is you made the same amount of money and you got to have such a beautiful life. Same bottom line. Totally different experience. And I'm like, wow. So Rabbeinu B'chayi's metaphor is precise and exact. Then I remembered something else. I remembered that Rabbeinu B'chayi, the second, 
Rabbeinu B'chayi ben Asher, only lived about 700 years ago, he says in his commentary on the Torah that when the Jewish people went, left Mitzrayim, went into the desert, they were filled with tests, and the tests were designed to build their betachen. This was a betachen building experiment. We went, so to speak, to the gym to build up our spiritual muscles. And this happened from the beginning. Just like it was with Avram, that Avram overcame his tests and challenges, and Hashem said, Ah, after your baiti, now I know who you really are. Yisrael left Mitzrayim. Listen what the Ben Abachaya the second says. Sheroiv hanisim ashenaslem b'midbar. Most of the miracles that happened, all you could they leave chaynes libam. It was to test their hearts, laviim l'denisoyim, to bring them into a test, which was supposed to develop their betochen. Just like Kriyas Yamsov, the Ben Abachaya says an incredible thing here. He says the sea did not split open. That's what the movie says. It's not what happened. He said there was a wall of water they were walking into and every step they took, it split as they walked, but each step they took was a test, a test of faith and conviction. And Hashem did this specifically so that they would see that as long as you do what Hashem wants, everything works out right. And then Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar skips forward into the manna that fell down. And they had only one supply, one day's supply. And nobody knew where tomorrow's meal would come from. No pantry. He doesn't mention the waters, but it doesn't matter. It's like, this is, he makes a point there. He says, hanisim, all the waters, all the miracles. What happened that miracle? Moshe Rabbeinu was throwing a wood by Hashem. He threw the wooden and it sweetened. What's the eights? Our rabbis tell us that's the eights. If you throw the Torah into it, you put Torah into it, life all of a sudden sweetens. Why did Hashem test the Jewish people time and again? So that we would develop a nature. We would build our betochen, our trust in Hashem. And when all of this came to me, I realized, wow, what an amazing idea Rabbeinu B'chayah shares with us. What an incredible metaphor this is. He took it from being a detail in trust with regard to Parnassa and he turned it into a metaphor for nothing less than life itself. A powerful lesson. My life could be better. Your life could be so much better if we live it with betochen, absolute, perfect Torah trust in Hashem. May we merit to live with betochen. May we merit to drink of the sweet waters of Yiddishkeit, of Torah, of spirituality, and to see Hashem provide for us in a way that is overt and open and direct. May we overcome the tests, the trials, the seeming deceptions, and as a result, we should be zoicher to finally enter into a new world where everything is perfectly clear and obvious, a world of absolute goodness and the sweetest of days with the coming of Mashiach ben Heira will be Amenu, Amen. Thank you so much for joining. I hope you found this uplifting and I look forward to seeing you back again. Have a beautiful day.